0: Section 39 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, Interface The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 2 of the progress of philosophical chemistry in sweden part one of the progress of philosophical chemistry in sweden though sweden partly in consequence of her scanty population and the consequent limited sale of books in that country and partly from the propensity of her writers to imitate the french which has prevented that originality in her poets and historians that is requisite for acquiring much eminence. Though Sweden, for these reasons, has never reached a very high rank in literature, yet the case has been very different in science. She has produced men of the very first eminence, and has contributed more than her full share in almost every department of science, and none has she shown with greater luster than in the department of chemistry. Even in the latter part of the 17th century, before chemistry had, properly speaking, assumed the rank of a science, we find Hyärn in Sweden, whose name deserves to be mentioned with respect. Moreover, in the earlier part of the 18th century, Brandt, Scheffer, and Wallerius had distinguished themselves by their writings. Kronstadt, about the middle of the 18th century, may be said to have laid the foundation of systematic mineralogy upon chemical principles by the publication of his System of Mineralogy. But Bergman is entitled to the merit of being the first person who prosecuted chemistry in Sweden on truly philosophical principles, and raised it to that high estimation to which its importance justly entitles it torburn bergman was born in katharineburg in west gothland on the 20th of march 1735 his father bartold bergman was receiver of the revenues of that district and his mother sarah Hag, the daughter of a Gothaborg merchant a receiver of the revenues was at that time in sweden a post both disagreeable and hazardous the creatures of a party which had the ascendancy in one diet they were exposed to the persecution of the diet next following in which an opposite party usually had the predominance this circumstance induced bergman to advise his son to turn his attention to the professions of law or divinity which were at that time the most lucrative in sweden after having spent the usual time at school and acquired those branches of learning commonly taught in Sweden, in the public schools and academies to which Bergman was sent, he went to the University of Uppsala in the autumn of 1752, where he was placed under the guidance of a relation, whose province it was to superintend his studies, and direct them to those pursuits that were likely to lead young Bergman to wealth and distinction. Our young student showed at once a decided predilection for mathematics, and those branches of physics which were connected with mathematics or depended upon them. But these were precisely the branches of study which his relation was anxious to prevent his indulging in. Bergman attempted at once to indulge his own inclination and to gratify the wishes of his relation. This obliged him to study with a degree of ardour and perseverance, which has few examples. His mathematical and physical studies claimed the first share of his attention, and after having made such progress in them as would alone have been sufficient to occupy the whole time of an ordinary student, to satisfy his relation, Jonas Victorin, who was at that time a Magister Docens in Uppsala, he thought it requisite to study some law books besides, that he might be able to show that he had not neglected his advice, nor abandoned the views which he had held out. He was in the habit of rising to his studies every morning at four o'clock, and he never went to bed till eleven at night. The first year of his residence at Upsala, he had made himself master of Wolff's logic, of Wallerius's system of chemistry, and of twelve books of Euclid's elements for he had already studied the first book of that work in the gymnasium before he went to college. He likewise perused Kyle's lectures on astronomy, which at that time were considered as the best introduction to physics and astronomy. His relative disapproved of his mathematical and physical studies altogether, but not being able to put a stop to them, he interdicted the books and left his young charge merely the choice between law and divinity. Bergman got a small box made, with a drawer, into which he put his mathematical and physical books, and over this box he piled the law books which his relative had urged him to study. At the time of the daily visits of his relative, the mathematical and physical books were carefully locked up in the drawer, and the law books spread upon the table, but no sooner was his presence removed than the drawer was opened, and the mathematical studies resumed. This incessant study, this necessity under which he found himself to consult his own inclinations and those of his relatives, this double portion of labor, without time for relaxation, exercise, or amusement, proved at last injurious to young Bergman's health. He fell ill and was obliged to leave the university and return home to his father's house in a state of bad health. There, constant and moderate exercise was prescribed him as the only means of restoring his health. That his time here might not be altogether lost to him, he formed the plan of making his walk subservient to the study of botany and entomology. At this time, Linnaeus, after having surmounted obstacles which would have crushed a man of ordinary energy, was in the height of his glory and was a professor of botany and natural history in the University of Uppsala. His lectures were attended by crowds of students from every country in Europe. He was enthusiastically admired and adored by his students. This influence on the minds of his pupils was almost unbounded, and at Uppsala every student was a natural historian. Bergman had studied botany before he went to college, and he had acquired a taste for entomology from the lectures of Linnaeus himself. Both of these pursuits he continued to follow after his return home to West Gothland, and he made a collection of plants and of insects. Grasses and mosses were the plants to which he turned the most of his attention, and of which he collected the greatest number. But he felt a predilection for the study of insects, which was a field much less explored than the study of plants. Among the insects which he collected were several not to be found in the fauna Suitschica. Of these he sent specimens to Linnaeus at Uppsala, who was delighted with the present. All of them were till then unknown as Swedish insects, and several of them were quite new. The following were the insects at this time collected by Bergman, and sent to Uppsala, as they were named by Linnaeus. Philina Bombix monaca, camelina. Noxua Parthenius Conspicularis Perspicularis flavicornis, Cornus Polybia Geometra Panaria Tortix Bernamania lediana, Tania Heracella Pedella Punctella Tenthrito Vitalina Ustilata Ichnumen Jaculator Niger Tipula Tremula When Bergman's health was reestablished. He returned to Uppsala with full liberty to prosecute his studies according to his own wishes, and to devote the whole of his time to mathematics, physics, and natural history. His relations, finding it in vain to combat his predilections for these studies, thought it better to allow him to indulge them. He had made himself known to Linnaeus by the collection of insects which he had sent him from Catherineburg. And, drawn along by the glory with which Linnaeus was surrounded, and the zeal with which his fellow students prosecuted such studies, he devoted a great deal of his attention to natural history. The first paper which he wrote upon the subject contained a discovery. There was a substance observed in some ponds not far from Uppsala, to which the name Coccus Aquaticus was given, but its nature was unknown. Linnaeus had conjectured that it might be the ovarium of some insect, but he left the point to be determined by future observations. Bergman ascertained that it was the ovum of a species of leech, and that it contained from ten to twelve young animals. When he stated what he had ascertained to Linnaeus, that great naturalist refused to believe it, but Bergman satisfied him the truth of his discovery by actual observation. Linnaeus, thus satisfied, wrote under the paper of Bergman, Vidi et Abstupui, and sent it to the Academy of Stockholm with this flattering panegyric. It was printed in the memoirs of that learned body for 1756, page 199, and was the first paper of Bergman's that was committed to the press. He continued to prosecute the study of natural history as an amusement, though mathematics and natural philosophy occupied by far the greatest part of his time. Various useful papers of his, connected with entomology, appeared from time to time in the memoirs of the Stockholm Academy, in particular, a paper on the history of insects, which attacked fruit trees, and on the methods of guarding against their ravages, on the method of classing these insects from the forms of their larvae a time when it would be most useful for the agriculturist to know in order to destroy those that are hurtful. A great number of observations on this class of animals, so various in their shape and their organization, and so important for man to know, some of which he has been able to overcome, while others, defended by their small size and powerful by their vast numbers, still continue their ravages and which offers so interesting a sight to the philosopher by their labors, their manners, and their foresight. Bergman was fond of these pursuits, and looked back upon them in afterlife with pleasure. Long after, he used to mention with much satisfaction that by the use of the method pointed out to him, no fewer than seven millions of destructive insects were destroyed in a single garden, and during the course of a single summer. About the year 1757, he was appointed tutor to the only son of Count Adolf Frederick Stackelberg, a situation which he filled greatly to the satisfaction both of the father and son, as long as the young count stood in need of an instructor. He took his master's degree in 1758, choosing for the subject of his thesis an astronomical interpolation. Soon after, he was appointed Magister docens in Natural Philosophy, a situation peculiar to the university of ipsala and constituting a kind of assistant to the professor for his promotion to this situation he was obliged to m ferner who saw how well qualified he was for it and how beneficial his labors would be to the university of Uppsala. in 1761 he was appointed adjunct in mathematics and physics which I presume means he was raised to the rank of an associate with the professor of these branches of science. In this situation, it was his business to teach these sciences to the students of Uppsala, a task for which he was exceedingly well fitted. During this period he published various tracts on different branches of physical science, particularly on the rainbow, the crepuscula, the aurora borealis, the electrical phenomena of Iceland spar and of the tourmaline. We find his name among the astronomers who observed the first transit of Venus over the Sun in 1761, whose results deserve the greatest confidence. His observations on the electricity of the tourmaline are important. It was he that first established the true laws that regulate these curious phenomena. During the whole of this period, he had been silently studying chemistry and mineralogy, though nobody suspected that he was engaged in any such pursuits. But in 1767, John Gottschalk Wallerius, who had long filled the chair of chemistry in the University of Uppsala with high reputation, resigned his chair. Bergman immediately offered himself as a candidate for the vacant professorship, and to show that he was qualified for the office, published two dissertations on the manufacture of alum which probably he had previously drawn up and had lying by him while Arius intended to resign his chair in favor of a pupil or relation of his own whom he had destined to succeed him he immediately formed a party to oppose the pretensions of bergman and his party was so powerful and so malignant that few doubted of their success for it was joined by all those who despairing of equaling the industry and reputation of bergman set themselves to oppose and obstruct his success such men unhappily exist in all colleges and the more eminent a professor is the more he is exposed to their malignant activity many of those who cannot themselves rise to any eminence derive pleasure from the attempt to pull down the eminent to their own level in these attempts, however, they seldom succeed, unless some form of want of prudence and steadiness in the individual whom they assail. Bergman's dissertations on alum were severely handled by Walerius and his party, and such was the influence of the ex-professor that everybody thought Bergman would be crushed by him. Fortunately, Gustavus III of Sweden, at that time crown prince, was chancellor of the university. He took up the cause of Bergman, influenced, it is said, by the recommendation of von Schwab, who pledged himself for his qualifications, and was so keen on the subject that he pleaded his cause in person before the Senate. Walerius and his party were, of course, baffled, and Bergman got the chair. For this situation, his previous studies had fitted him in a peculiar manner his mathematical, physical, and natural historical knowledge, so far from being useless, contributed to free him from prejudices, and to emancipate him from that spirit of routine under which chemistry had hitherto suffered. They gave to his ideas a greater degree of precision, and made his views more correct. He saw that mathematics and chemistry divided between them the whole extent of natural science, and that its bounds required to be enlarged to enable it to embrace all the different branches of science with which it was naturally connected, or which depended upon it. He saw the necessity of banishing from chemistry all vague hypotheses and explanations, and of establishing the science on the firm basis of experiment. He was equally convinced of the necessity of reforming the nomenclature of chemistry, and of bringing it to the same degree of precision that characterized the language of the other branches of natural philosophy his first care after getting the chair was to make as complete a collection as he could of mineral substances and to arrange them in order according to the nature of their constituents as far as they had been determined by experiment to another cabinet he assigned the swedish minerals ranged in a geographical manner according to the different provinces which furnished them when I was at Uppsala in 1812, the first of these collections still remained, greatly augmented by his nephew and successor, Alphelius, but no remains existed of the geographical collection. However, there was a very considerable collection of this kind in the apartments of the Swedish School of Mines at Stockholm, under the care of Mr. Jalm, which I had an opportunity of inspecting it is not improbable that bergman's collection might have formed the nucleus of this a geographical collection of minerals to be of much utility should exhibit all the different formations which exist in the kingdom and in a country so uniform in its nature as sweden the minerals of one county are very nearly similar to those of other counties with the exception of certain peculiarities derived from the mines or from some formations which may belong exclusively to certain parts of the country, as, for example, the coal formations of the south corner of Sweden, near Helensburg, and the porphyry rocks in Elfsdale. Bergman attempted also to make a collection of models of the apparatus employed in the different chemical manufactories, to be enabled to explain these manufactures with greater clearness to his students. I was informed by M Eckberg who in 1812 was magister Dosens in chemistry at Uppsala that these models were never numerous nor is it likely that they should be as sweden cannot boast any great number of chemical manufactories and as in bergman's time the processes followed in most of the chemical manufactories of europe were kept as secret as possible Thus it was Bergman's object to exhibit to his pupils specimens of all the different substances which the earth furnishes, with the order in which these productions are arranged on the globe, to show them the uses made of all these different productions, how practice had preceded theory, and had succeeded in solving many chemical problems of the most complicated nature. His lectures are said to have been particularly valuable he drew around him a considerable number of pupils who afterwards figured as chemical discoverers themselves of all these assessor Gon of fallen was undoubtedly the most remarkable but helm gadolin the Uliarts, and various other individuals likewise distinguished themselves as chemists after his appointment to the chemical chair at upsala the remainder of his life passed with very little variety His whole time was occupied with his favorite studies, and not a year passed that he did not publish some dissertation or other upon some more or less important branch of chemistry. His reputation gradually extended itself over Europe, and he was enrolled among the number of the members of most scientific academies. Among other honorable testimonies of the esteem in which he was held, he was elected rector of the University of Uppsala this university is not merely a literary body but owns extensive estates over which it possesses great authority and having considerable control over its students and enjoying considerable immunities and privileges conferred in former times as an encouragement to learning though in reality they serve only to cramp its energies and throw barriers in the way of its progress constitutes therefore a kind of republic in the midst of sweden the professors being its chiefs. But while in literary establishments all the institutions ought to have for an object to maintain peace and free their members from every occupation unconnected with letters, the constitution of that university obliges its professors to attend to things very inconsistent with their usual functions. While it gives men of influence and ambition a desire to possess the power and patronage though they may not be qualified to perform the duties of a professor. Such temptations are very injurious to the true cause of science, and it were to be wished that no literary body in any part of the world were possessed of such powers and privileges. When Bergman was rector, the university was divided into two great parties, the one consisting of the theological and law faculties, and the other of the scientific professors bergman's object was to preserve peace and agreement between these two parties and to convince them that it was the interest of all to unite for the good of the university and the promotion of letters the period of his magistracy is remarkable in the annals of the university for the small number of deliberations and the little business recorded in the registers and for the good sense and good behavior of the students the students in Upsala are numerous, and most of them are young men. They had been accustomed frequently to brave or elude the severity of regulations, but during Bergman's rectorship they were restrained effectually by their respect for his genius and their admiration of his character and conduct. End of section thirty nine recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio Interface Audio dot